I don't mind a little cheese every now and again. But, cheese uh, is good. Can't be good from a French guy. <laughs> it's funny. I get a lot of people thinking I'm French. I mean, do do you laugh like ho 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 or not? <laughs> Welcome back to the Sound Iron Podcast. It's Craig Peters, and I'm here with Nathan Bowler and our special guest. Uh, he's a mixing and mastering engineer who, more than likely, you've heard his work on a ton of projects, a lot of uh, trailer work and stuff that you've that you've mixed on, like Dunkirk, It, Venom, and a ton of others. And he's also a fantastic composer. So I'd like to welcome Joel Dolly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, you know, speaking that you're a composer, you've recently come out with a track called Homecoming, which is a really great track, by the way. Oh, thank you. And I wanted to know, since you predominantly do a lot of mixing and mastering work these days, when when do you get to you know set some time aside and just go back into the you know putting on the composing hat and and doing that? Uh, honestly, it's not that often. Um, I would say like if it's my own tracks, it's probably once a year. But sometimes some of my clients just ask me to add some uh, arrangement. So someone once uh, asked me to just like add kind of a Disney, like Disney-ish arrangements to his uh, song. So he just had like drums and uh, vocals, you know, and he wanted me to kind of orchestrate it. So, you know, I do that sometimes, like every few months, but it's not too often. And, you know, every once in a while, I have an idea to, to make a new track. But recently, it's been very, very slow because I just don't find the motivation after a full day of work to, to kind of open the door to work on my own stuff, you know. But it's fun because when you, when you publish it, it's still rewarding. So I would like to do that more, honestly. Is it still pretty easy to kind of get back into the composing mindset? Or do you ever have to kind of like remember old things you used to do or any sort of like composing theory or no, anything like that? It's actually the opposite. Uh, I mean, if you listen to my music from two years ago, like it's nothing compared to my last track, in my opinion, because I feel like I learned just by mixing tracks because I'm always exposed to orchestration. Like I'm constantly exposed to good orchestration. And, you know, as I sort of, progress i mix better tracks as well because you know i get clients with more experience as well so i feel like i'm just it's kind of like a like a cheat code you know like i have access to all this information <laughs> how do you actually orchestrate then I, i can just kind of copy that you know oh okay he did that with the two horns he did, he he made the chord with the two horns not the six horns so it's clearer you know all that all these tricks i can just sort of copy so it's really actually like i feel like I, i'm progressing with orchestration just by mixing stuff you know So it's, it's a very good it's point. Like a nice feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like you're almost having to skip by, like, you know, how a lot of people uh, trying to unravel their favorite scores and they're pulling out, yeah. you know, the sheet music and they're going through and they're having to program it in, which is good, which is a good exercise, especially if you're trying to get, you know, your mock up chops going. But yeah, that makes a good point. Just being able to like isolate tracks and having all the stems or individual tracks and being able to see, you know, how lines work together or how, each section kind of makes a whole yeah and also i mean um, when you mix you sort of realize what works and what doesn't in terms of orchestration so you can also sort of know like if you pile up for example too many instruments in one frequency range it's gonna get muddy so that kind of helps you as well like the better your ears are for mixing the better they are for orchestration in my opinion it's sort of related you know orchestration in my opinion is sort of like a premix because Like you're going to to spread instruments in different ranges, you know, they're going to take care of different notes of the harmony, for example. So the way you spread things in the, the frequency range is going to already balance out your, your tonal balance and your balance, you know, of your mix. So 
orchestration is sort of like a premix. What would you say are some common things that you see that are usually always problematic when it comes to mixing for clients? Like, is there certain common things that you tend to see that are、mm. always kind of problematic? Yeah. Well, usually it's the arrangement. So what's going to happen is that they might not have certain key elements. For example, they're going to 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 lack a really low bass. Say, for example, they make brass. Sometimes I ask people, okay, where is the tuba? You have trombones, but your brass doesn't really extend low enough. So it's like they they orchestrate things, but they're kind of missing one key element, you know. Or maybe they kind of try to build the track towards the climax, but they're kind of lacking this high octave of violins, you know. So just certain things, like even percussion,、uh, the way they sort of build up percussion,、uh, you kind of have to think of it as different frequency ranges as well. Like you can't just、um, use one like plastic damage patch or whatever. That doesn't really have big low end and expect things to sound like Hans Zimmer, you know. You have to layer like a bigger tom or taiko ensemble that really extends in the 50 to 100 hertz, and then you can layer that with your kind of mid rangey percussion, and that's how you really get a powerful sound. So I would say mostly orchestration and production issues like that, just lacking a few elements. Yeah,、uh, I was watching a video recently that that you were doing. It's like one of your quick mixing videos that you put out. Yeah. And it was on、uh, like mixing symphonic metal with like orchestra and stuff. I'm always looking for tips and stuff to make that kind of stuff、mm. better because that's sort of what I do on on my own. And、uh, I like I like how you were talking about you know using compression to kind of extend the ring to kind of fill it out, especially in dense mixes. But also how you talk about layering elements. So you know because that's something I've seen a lot in metal mixing videos for you know、mm. for drums and. You know, a lot of times it's usually layering. They think, "Oh, I need to find this like one big bad kick drum that's gonna like work for everything." And a lot of times、mm. it's not the case because every mix could be different depending on how the guitars sound, the way the bass is, you know, how everything kind of fits together. And I thought that was really cool how you're talking about layering different samples and and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think when you want to mix modern drums like modern metal and stuff like that, it's really important to have some kind of layering tool, like some drum triggering software, because usually you can't really get a nice snare sound just with one snare close mic. You're gonna want some snare sample on top, usually a snare room, because like in the context of a mix with really dense guitars that are really kind of flat dynamically, if you want your snare to actually sound and feel long, you need some really long tail. So of course you could just jam a lot of reverb in the mix on the snare. But reverb doesn't really like transient elements. Like if you just put like a ton of reverb on a really sharp element, it will just sound like a rattle unless you have a really good reverb. So the better option, in my opinion, is just to layer a snare sample. So you kind of use the dry a snare top, usually snare top mic for the attack, and then you use a snare sample to kind of fill the gap, you know. And and the kick, it kind of depends. Like kicks, I feel they're a bit easier to mix because it's just like you you just want the really low fifty、uh, hertz to a hundred. And you want the click as well. So if it's mic'd properly, you can just get away with a, a recorded kick. But it's always good to have the option of samples because you never know how well recorded you're gonna get your drums. What do you tend to use when you're when you're doing that sort of thing? Drums in general, do you use like the slate trigger? Or... Yeah, I use a slate trigger, but the the deluxe one with the the raw samples.、Mm-hmm. I actually prefer the the expansion that has the raw samples. Before that, I was using the Melda Melda drum enhancer. It's actually not really like a drum triggering software. It's like a a synth for drums. It's sort of Like you put a sample through it, resynth your your drum sample to be in phase with the the original sample. It's kind of weird, but it works fine. But actually, nowadays I really prefer just triggering samples, honestly. And you you mainly work in in Pro Tools and in FL Studio. Yeah, for composing still FL Studio. 
because I don't really compose too much nowadays, but I should probably change to Cubase or something because FL Studio is a bit slow for some things. Uh, but yeah, for mixing Pro Tools, I mean, there is no way I could use anything else now. It's too, there is too many shortcuts for key things. I couldn't use anything else for mixing. Yeah, I've actually never used Pro Tools. It's funny. It's like for as much of like an industry standard as it is, I've just like, I've never had like a reason. And especially for composing, I always feel like I think they're probably catching up more now, but it seems like there was a lot of people who were trying MIDI composition and like mock-up stuff and Pro Tools, but I always heard it was like a little bit. I don't think it's good. Yeah, it's not as user-friendly. Cubase, I think you'd probably like. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was hesitating between Studio One and Cubase, but I would probably go Cubase. Yeah. So how did you get started using FL Studios? So actually, it's when I was 14 or something, I was listening to a lot of trance music and I heard that this producer used FL Studio called Soundlift. And I was like, oh, oh, this guy is using FL Studio. Is this a program to make music? Okay, I'm going to look into it. So this is just the first program to make music that I heard, you know? So then I was like, okay, can you make orchestral music with it? So I googled around and I saw people using that for orchestral. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to get it. What's more exact is like my mom got it for me. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I still have that same license for like it's been so many years now. Yeah, you and Alex Michaela are like the only two I've seen that really doing some like awesome orchestral composing stuff in, in FL Studios. I, I'm sure there's plenty of other people. Yeah, I, I think most composers after a while, like if they're actually going to compose every day, they're going to realize after a while that FL is just holding them back for too many things. Eventually everybody switches. I'm, I'm going to switch. I was going to ask you how you get your clients. So you were talking about different genres and stuff. So like, how do you go about uh, landing an engineering or like a mastering gig? Uh, well, it's funny because actually yesterday I had a, a mastering job. So I, I tried to kind of go in different places. For example, I have an account on Soundbetter, if you know this website. So sometimes every every month, someone contacts me there. Then I have my YouTube channel. That's going to be people who already watch my videos, so they know me. YouTube channel works much better than Soundbetter. So you get clients this way as well. And, and then there is, you know, Facebook social media and just word of mouth. I think word of mouth is probably the most powerful, especially when it comes to uh, good clients. They always come from a previous client. Sure. Uh, for example, I did like an orchestral version for Griffin, DJ. And then there is a composer who knew the composer who worked in this orchestral arrangement, who was doing something for Kashmir as well. So he kind of found me through his composer friend, you know, who, who was working for Griffin. So you get this, this contact, you know, like that, with word of mouth. And that's the most powerful, I would say. It's just like in these kinds of jobs, it's all about the network. If you have a good network, you don't even have to post on social media, actually. Like I know many professionals who they are just kind of invisible, yet they have work all the time. So it's behind the scenes, you know. But I think uh, in my case, social media is definitely helping as well, you know, because I make tutorials, I make videos. So then you get some people who see that and want mixes as well. Yeah. So I just try to multiply the, the exposure, you know. Yeah, I first heard of you through uh, Dirk Alert. I've learned a lot from him, especially working through DocuScores, which is their production library company. And I remember telling him like, yeah, I want to get better, you know, like mixing more like not not necessarily like trailer type stuff, but just production music and just making it sound better. And, and he was like, dude, you got to get Joel's course talking about it. And I was like, you know, OK, so I'll start checking it out. And that's how I started talking with you. And you were kind enough to let me check it out. And it's really good stuff. There's still a lot I, I need to finish. Uh, there's a lot of like really, really good stuff is just far as like kind of like the basics that I think probably a lot of people can get wrong or or just things that maybe they think they know, but they don't. Because what I really like about your approach is it's very detailed. You pay attention to the details, which is great, especially if you're going to be an audio engineer. So how did you start getting into it? And what about it kind of gravitated you toward doing that more full time? Yeah, I would say it's just 
somehow, you know, I couldn't compose every day. Like I got kind of drained. It's around 2016, maybe, that I really started transitioning into mixing. So, you know, I, I was kind of waiting one month, two months between tracks, sometimes three months. And I realized, okay, I'm spending even more time with the mixing aspect of uh, production than composing. Then I realized, okay, it's almost like I'm enjoying mixing more than composing. And I'm, I'm not really creative enough to just come up with good stuff every day. So I don't really want to make composing a career. I don't think I could. It's too taxing on the, the creativity. So, you know, I kind of realized, okay, but I can mix. Then I kind of got my first clients through just friends, you know, they were friends who uh, kind of sent me the tracks to mix. And from there, I kind of transitioned into just mixing and my music, like what I produced kind of fell down as I made less and less tracks. Mm. And I mixed more and more of other people's tracks. So just kind of grew like that. And I realized I just enjoy mixing more. So why go back to composition? Like why can I force myself to make a new track every time? And I mean, I still enjoy it, but it's just kind of taxing. If you need to go every day or every two days and just come up with something, I don't know. It's just not as enjoyable as mixing for me. What are some things that tend to inspire you these days to actually get you to start composing again whenever you start to work on tracks? Is there anything that kind of jumpstarts the creativity or like, like with your uh, most recent track, what kind of got the inspiration for that going? Yeah, usually it's just listening to a really good track. So it could be any genre, actually. Like even just like some random EDM track could get me to to make a new orchestral track. In that case, it was the, the Wagner uh, Tannhauser Overture that got me to make this track. The, the violin motif that goes down in, in the climax. I kind of got it from the Tannhauser Overture. Just I, w- I listened to this track and I was like, oh, wow, that, that sounds really cool. Maybe I can do some classical-ish thing. You know, I got inspired like that. And then I started. And, and once you start for one hour and you get the main things set, it's much easier to continue as well. So I just need like a trigger, you know, like a really good track that I enjoy and then I can keep going. Yeah, because one of the things we we talk about sometimes on here is just like getting the ball rolling, getting the creative juices flowing, like, you know, especially like writer's block pops up where people are like, oh, you know, I don't know what to write. And it's like, I'm always curious to hear what kind of gets the ball rolling for, for some people because it's, it's always different. And like one thing for one person might be something that someone else has never tried. I mean, for me, actually, finally, it's really orchestral music. I mean, in that case, it was, but for fun, I mostly listen to pop music, like other genres, you know, I don't listen to that much like epic orchestral or whatever for fun. I just find that other kinds of music just inspire me to compose orchestral music that's different. Maybe it's the fact that other genres might have elements that you don't typically find in orchestral music it kind of tells me okay what could i integrate that's not commonly hard in orchestral music what could i integrate in orchestral music you know i listen to a lot of other genres i think any composer should listen to a bunch of different things because that's how you kind of open your creativity tell us about your course how long did it take you to make it what is included inside of it things like that and how long did it take and I don't know exactly, maybe like six months. Okay. But uh, I couldn't tell exactly because it's been so long. 2018, I think I released it. So it's just like the way I like to teach is kind of to set the basics first. So you have like the key elements that you need to know. What's balance, tonal, tonal balance, compression, EQ, stuff like that. Once you understand how these things work. So not really like the basics, basics, but how you apply these concepts, like how you would approach tonal balance in orchestral music. And so once you know that, then you kind of need to bring all of this into context because you can't just teach theory and abstract stuff only. So then I do the what I call mixed deconstructions. But I mean, many people do mixed deconstructions in any genre. And the point is, you just see how a track is actually mixed with every track. You know, you just show everything on every track. And that really kind of shows people what they like. It can make links between the first lessons and the mixed deconstructions. And they can also see when you break the rules because you don't always apply the same concepts in every way, like in every similar way. So the more situations of mixing I would say they are exposed to, the better because you can get more insight on how to mix a track. So that, that's why I have these lessons first, like uh, maybe 15 lessons or so, and then the mixed deconstructions. That's kind of how I see it. And then 
I mean, it's important to mention that mixing is not just watching someone else mix as well. You can only get really good at mixing if you mix yourself because you're not going to hear the one dB cut. You're not going to hear that at the beginning. It's going to take maybe two years or three years until you can hear one dB cut. So if you can actually develop your ears to, to this level, then you're going to be able to mix better because instantly you're going to know, okay, this sounds needs this EQ, you know, you need to kind of reach this level of confidence. The, the way I kind of approach teaching is like, I try to give you some main sort of rules so you can kind of start down the right path already, but this doesn't really replace practicing until you can really hear everything you're doing and understand why you did this all this time. And when this knowledge sort of materializes and you can really understand it deeply, that's how you really get good at, it, at mixing, in my opinion. I feel it like it very much relates to even music. It's like when people start learning theory and then you hear people yeah. say like, learn theory and then just break the rules. Like having that foundation is so important. Once you know it, then you can experiment, do stuff that's like, well, I'm going to do this here because even though theoretically that to some people that might be wrong, but I'm going to do it because for what I'm going for it works, even though it's a little like left field or something. But I think it's good to like some people when it comes to teaching mixing, they just say use your ears, you know, and they don't really give guidelines. And I, I think this is not the right way because in my opinion, you need to lead people down the right path. If uh, you always cut mids in the horns, always in every track, maybe tell people that they could consider cutting the mids in the horns, you know, because it's going to sound bloated otherwise. Even if sometimes they might overcut, you know, they might get it wrong. At least they're going to sort of be led down the right path with some level of information because when you start and you don't know anything about mixing, you could spend one year or two years, you know, doing everything wrong and it's just going to slow you down. Whereas if you just have some kind of basic guidance, you're going to be able to, just like you said, learning theory, you're going to be able to get into some good habits, you know, and then you're going to be able to fine tune these good habits. But uh, at the same time, of course, you can't just say always do this because this is true. This is not true in mixing. It's always a case by case basis. Like each track is different. So, you know, uh, that's why actually I have a new course that's coming up really soon. Oh, nice. And it's sort of the same content when it comes to the basics, but I'm just making way more videos and it's way more detailed, actually. And I'm also going to include a series of videos that's going to be their instrument, their orchestral instrument. So I'm going to have like violin one, violas, cello, basses, all, and all that stuff. What I'm trying to do here is not literally tell people, okay, cut at 500 hertz, but I'm telling them, okay, often you're going to need to watch out for the mids and the horns, you know? So it, it, it's kind of like, okay, be aware of these ranges every time you start mixing. So when people kind of have their tracks in front of them, they're going to know. Okay, I'm going to watch, watch out for this. If my brass is too muddy, maybe that's the reason. So yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to do now. Oh, nice. When, when are you expecting that to come out? Yeah, so we're still uh, editing the videos and all that stuff. I'm actually doing it with a, another company. It's called Master the Score. So they're going to have a bunch of composers and people making courses. So it, it's still, still going to take a while to get everything really polished, you know. But maybe one month, two months, something like that. Nice. I got to keep my eye out for that one. Yeah, I feel like, like it's very easy to fall into those traps of making those same moves like you see like especially when it comes to EQing certain instruments there's very much like you know like with guitars it's like oh like you know make sure you scoop out the low mids because you know if you're recording real amps you get a lot of that amp kind of honk and stuff but then it's very easy to like neuter the guitar tone because you're just scooping out a lot of mids sometimes you need those exactly like a lot of people back in the day that's all they did was just scoop the mids and doesn't have like enough full power to kind of cut through yeah and I mean guitars they need the mids you know 
feel like maybe the reason is that sometimes people want the guitar to sound like the guitar plus the bass. So yeah. they kind of want to turn their guitars into a guitar plus bass sound. So they just scoop the mids until it sounds fat. Yeah. But they just had to raise the bass guitar in the mix, you know? Yeah. It, it's funny. That's something I've always told a lot of people. A lot of the tone in the guitar doesn't necessarily come from the guitar. A lot of times it comes from the bass, like having a really good bass tone that's like in tune and locked in because especially with uh, with basses, because I've seen some people do stuff where they like split channels out. They'll have like their bass high and their bass low and they'll like filter out certain aspects like the bass low. They'll like limit the piss out of it to where it's just like super just locked in and then like the high end they'll put distortion and really get that sort of like crunch but then you'll hear just the guitar by itself and it doesn't really sound that flattering not a lot of gain just sounds kind of stereotypical you know rock or metal guitar but then when you hear with the bass all of a sudden it's like the power and that kind of like clank from the bass kind of comes in and it just sync together like the, the the reason bass sounds so good is that uh, usually you have like a really low bass and you put an amp on it, you know, like distorted metal basses. And that's when you distort like a really low sound that you get all that growl in the 1K region. I actually boost the 1K sometimes on bass guitars, like distorted bass guitars, and you really get this texture out of the sound. After compression, so you get a really consistent growl, you know, first you compress it, then you boost the, the mids on the bass and you get a super nice growl and it just kind of cuts through the guitars as well. Balancing guitars and bass is kind of tricky with metal as well because sometimes you have the, the palm mutes on guitars and they carry a lot of weight as well in the 100 to 200 hertz range. Mm -hmm. So if you just cut the palm mutes, you also kind of lose some of the oomph, you know, some of the accents. And sometimes the bass doesn't do that, especially if you smash it with compression. So sometimes you want to kind of keep the dynamics in the palm mutes as well. So they kind of have to coexist. Yeah. Do you tend to do a lot of multiband compression on guitars just for palm mutes? Because I know, especially when you use palm mute, you'll get that kind of extra like woof you know, that, that low mid kind of honk that sort of starts to like kind of pop through. Do you ever do like multiband stuff just for when those palm mutes come in just to tame those regions? I mean, sometimes, but I always try to do normal uh, EQ and, and compression first, you know, because I kind of like how the sound behaves when you use a full range compressor. Because whatever element in the spectrum kind of triggers that full range compressor is going to sort of pin down everything. That's sort of how glow compression works as well. Like you have your drums kind of ducking your whole mix as well. So I, I sort of like how a full range compression can highlight a certain thing. So I don't always reach out to multiband compression unless I have an element that I know needs to sound flat. Uh, you know, let's say, for example, I have a, a bass guitar and I just want it to be like a bed, really consistent low end and no weird mid spikes in that growly range. In that case, I could use Gulfos automatic multiband compressor that's going to kind of try to add more consistency in every frequency at once. So if I want that sound to be flat anyway, yeah, sure, I'm going to use multiband compression. But in general, I try to, to first try to fix the main issues. Uh, even with a vocal, for example, Say you have like a vocal that becomes muddy as it goes down the range, you know, as the singer goes lower, you get this room resonance at 150, 200. So I first try to address this, this room resonance with fixed EQ, you know, not dynamic EQ. So I'm just cutting this all the time. And then, yeah, if it's still a bit resonant and not consistent, I might do a bit of multiband compression. I use a lot of girl force for that, honestly. And that's just going to add more consistency. So it's more like um, whatever I can't fix the normal way, I will multiband compress. That's sort of how I approach it. Nice. What what makes you reach for multiband versus dynamic EQ? Like in a, I think you were one of the first people that I, I saw doing that. And I was like, oh, I never really experimented with that in Q3. As far as like, you know, the more like dynamic EQ stuff, like the more creative EQ type thing versus multiband, like, like what makes you use one over the other? I mean, it's basically the same thing. The only, the only difference is that with dynamic EQ, you don't have full crossovers. It's just like an EQ point that's going to be automated. And some dynamic EQs don't uh, include attack and release and look ahead. 
So personally, it's whenever I need very fine transient control, like I want to control a shaker or like a very sharp metallic instrument and I want the full control of a multiband compressor, I'm going to grab ProMB and I'm going to go look ahead, shortest attack, shortest release. And if I really want to control the spike, that's going to do it. But now if it's just like a vocal or something that's a bit more, I don't really need that super precise control, I will use Dynamic EQ. Technically, it's less destructive to use, to use Dynamic EQ because uh, you're not separating the sound in full crossovers, full filters. But now can you really hear this? Not really, but you're just messing with the phase a bit less uh, usually. Also uh, with dynamic EQs, you can cut sharper things because it's like, of course, it's more like a, an EQ point automation. So if you want to do a really surgical cut and automate it, like a resonance, you're not going to be able to do that with multiband compressors or not as precisely. So yeah, it just kind of depends on your situation. But I would say if it's just like a resonance control, try dynamic EQ. If it's um, a dynamic control, you, you want a ratio, you know, you want a, a full compressor control with ratio attack release, then you're probably better off using a multiband compressor. When it comes to mixing and mastering, do you mix mostly in the box or do you use any outboard gear or anything, anything like that in your work? No, no, no. I'm not a masochist. I wouldn't use any outboard gear. <laughs> it's, it's too much uh, work. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite reverb plugin? Yeah, it's going to be a VSS3 probably. Or maybe cinematic rooms. I don't know that. I like cinematic rooms and VSS3 yeah, because, you know, they just kind of complete each other. Like VSS3 is not the most, like the newest, the most realistic reverb, but it has this classic uh, TC6000 uh, sound. It's very wide. It has this super wide early reflection. So if you want the sound to really spread, like, uh, you know, these really kind of wide sounding scores, like chances are they have this reverb on and that helps. Then uh, cinematic rooms is great because it's a very realistic and neutral reverb. So whatever you fit through it, you're just going to get the reverb version of that. Uh, it's not going to resonate like crazy. It's not going to build up in the low mids. So if you compare with like a, a Lexicon 480, for example, or some of these older digital reverbs, they sound like a mess usually in the low end uh, and in the low mids. So you kind of have to carve them and be more careful. Um, even Bricastis, uh, I used to use the Seventh Heaven reverb, the Bricastis. And it's fine for some stuff like solo instruments, closed mics, something you really want to swamp, you know. But in my opinion, for samples that are already wet, it's just too much. It's too swampy. So I like a reverb that's more neutral, that's going to be more sort of respectful of my spectrum, of my libraries, and just sort of enhance the space more neutrally. Cinematic Rooms with S3. It's a great combo. I actually use this in a parallel. I just layer them like that. Love it. Yeah, I think, I think Cinematic Rooms has been my go-to for a while since I've been using it. Before that, it was the 7th Heaven. Yeah, I heard it was supposed to digitally recreate like a Bricassi, and I was like, oh, you know, okay. Everyone talks about that. It's probably better than the Cubase reverb, but uh, it's it's so dense. Okay, maybe you mix it at minus 20, I don't know. It's just, you can't really put a lot of it. Like it's 7th Heaven, it just, if you feed a transient element through 7th Heaven, you will understand what it does. Just feed a drum through it. It's going to have so many reflections, so many closely, close reflections, close to each other in terms of timing. That is going to create a very diffuse echo it's not going to have any um rattle effect actually and that's the reason it might not be ideal for stuff that's already wet because you just end up diffusing you can it can almost add like a synthy feel just because it's so dense like the denser the reverb the reverb is the more it has sort of close early reflections and more longer early reflections and more of them you know whereas a reverb that's kind of does like a rattle effect as you play a transient through it it means it's going to have less reflections it's going to be more like a few delays so it's going to be a bit more neutral, a bit more respectful of the source. So both are useful. You know, if you want to put reverb on drums and you don't want this weird rattle effect, you need Seventh Heaven or something like that. If you have like a wet sound and you don't want to destroy the texture and sort of replace the texture by something different, then you want a reverb that's a bit more neutral. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel about Seventh Heaven. It has its uses. 
but since most of the work that I do is on um, libraries that are already wet, I just don't like it uh, as much as cinematic rooms. But yeah, just to, to go back to the, the hardware gear as well. Like, I'm not saying it's bad, you know, of course, if you're a guitarist, you need your amps and stuff like that. But for mixing, I don't think it makes sense for me. Like I'm hopping from project to project. Like maybe I work on five things every day. So I want to open the next project. I don't want settings to recall. I don't want to rely on the compressor that or any gear that's going to take time as well to, to warm up, you know, stuff like that. And I, I want to be able to switch quickly from project to project without having to remember the settings as well, you know. And yeah. then there is the fact that it costs like a lot. Thousands of dollars. A lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, if you have the money and you want, like you were born in this, I understand you want to have fun with this. Great. But you know, you don't really need this to do a good mix. Lots of mixers nowadays, even top mixers like uh, Andrew Sheps, they work in the box. Mm-hmm. I think they just had enough of the organization nightmare. So in 2022, it makes sense to just be in the box, in my opinion. And I think the like future engineers will probably be all in the box. That's what I was going to say. I'm sure if like back then when they were first starting, if they had these plugins around, I'm sure they would be using them. Just a lot of people started on certain things. That's just the way it was. Yeah. Then you have your habits. What would you say are like your top five go-to plugins that you probably use the most? Okay. ProQ3 for EQing. Then, uh, well, I'm, I always have the reverb. So yes, it's three and cinematic rooms. Maybe that's three. But you only need one of them. I mean, you don't need two. Uh, then... What do I use? Look at Patchwork because it's a, it's a way to build your parallel chains in an insert. It's like Patchwork in FL Studio. It's like a, a host for plugins. So what's cool as well is that you can load VSTs. If a plugin you use like some obscure plugin that doesn't exist in AAX, in Pro Tools, you can load it in uh, Patchwork and it will load. So there is that as well. But my main use for it is that I have lots of processing chains that I like to save. And I want them to be as an insert because I might want this parallel chain at one specific spot in the chain and then put more stuff afterwards. Like one example would be the doubler trick. Like I use the doubler, waves doubler with an EQ afterwards to sort of make the strings sound bigger. I have a video about this on my channel. Nice. So I want this to be before the reverbs because I don't want to put a weird stereo slap delay after a reverb. So I can't use this on the parallel aux. I want this to be in the chain, in the strings bus before it's being sent to the reverb. So the only way to do this would be with a patchwork. There's also a meta plugin, DDMF, I think. Uh, yeah, I use a 2C audio precedence. A precedence is sort of um, a sound stage. So it's like, it allows you to repan the sounds, but it's not just simple panning. It does different things. Uh, it has delays as well. So as you pan the sound to the left, it kind of delays the side a bit, but in a natural way, it's not weird usually. So if you use the right settings on precedence, it can repan your libraries or your instruments in a bit of a more realistic way. You know, it, it won't narrow the sound as much. So there is precedence. Uh, it's great. But now if you misuse it, you can also create phase issues. So as always, this plugin is a bit, you, you need to be able to hear the stereo field. Uh, then maybe the last one, what do I use all the time? Um, maybe a compressor, but I mean, I don't use compressors a lot because I mostly rely on dynamic EQ. But if I had to say one compressor, there is a track comp. And this one is great because it has several models of compressors in it. So you have LA2A, 1176, you know, uh, you have lots of models of compression. So you can just switch. So it's like you're buying five compressors for the price of one. So I, I love it. What about as far as for for your your mastering chain? Is there any sort of go to plugins that you use for like kind of getting that final sound? Secret sauce. The secret sauce plugins. Honestly, I just keep it very minimal because I do most of it in the mix. Honestly, it's like there is Gulfos, of course, especially the Gulfos Master. Like when you use Gulfos just a tiny bit, it can really clean up your low mids. So for mastering, I might put a bit of Gulfos. Then it's just EQ and sometimes some stereo widening. You know, there is the Ozone Imager. But I don't really do drastic processing. Uh, then there is, yeah, the limiter, of course, Pro L2. Uh, in my opinion, the best, most 
neutral limiter is going to be pro L2 by FabFilter. So that's what I use uh, for final limiting. I think that's what most people use. The, the ozone one is clearly not as good. <clears throat> it's more dirty. So I just use pro L2. It's way cleaner. And the loudness you can get out of it while kind of not destroying the sound is great. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I also use a clipper, a soft clipper, just to kind of get more volume, sort of control the peaks before the limiter. So maybe that's going to be on more hybrid tracks. If I want to just control some resin some peaks, some transients before I'm hitting the final limiter. Uh, for that, I use standard clip. I think it's by Sir Audio Tools, standard clip. So this one is great because you can do soft clipping, lots of settings, you know. Nice. I would put this before the limiter usually. Can you talk to us about how entrepreneurship plays into your career, specifically like what you would recommend for composers and mastering engineers, especially trying to get started? I saw that you have a book and you have a course and you have another course coming out. So teaching has obviously played a big part. And then the YouTube channel, maybe talk about like how, you know, working in public has been helpful for you and any ideas or like concepts that you want to pass along. Yeah, of course, teaching, you know, online presence nowadays is very useful. I mean, I would lie if I said this didn't help. This kind of helped kickstart things. I think in the past, you, can, you could just get by like by knowing someone or if you were in LA, maybe if you're very lucky you're in LA, you know someone, then you can get a job this way. Some people sure. got a job this way and got started. But you have to get started somehow. I mean, I'm not saying there is just one way. You don't have to teach or I would say at least you have to know a little bit before you teach. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of funny. I, it's kind of stupid coming from me saying that, but you know, there is some people that just start the YouTube channel just to make tutorials and it's all weird information, you know? So maybe practice yourself for a bit and be more confident in your knowledge before you try to put it out there. But of course, at some point, if you want to get things out, like you can get things out, you know, it's not like you have to get things out at some point, you know, and it's just how it is. Everybody's in a constant journey of improving. So mm -hmm. there is that as well. But, you know, I would say try by mixing your own tracks, your friends' tracks, and try to expand your network somehow. So it's not necessarily going to be just through online presence and YouTube channels. Maybe it's just going to be, I mean, a, a big part of it is going to be word of mouth. So you just have to get a client, then get this client's friends, and then you get the next level client. You need a website, of course. You need to put your work out there. You need to participate in groups and communities. Uh, just post a bit, you know. And you need to be able to show something, of course. You need to be, to be able to show that you have value because... I mean, the amount that people will be willing to pay you will be proportional to the value you can bring. Uh, of course, if you're unknown, you're not going to be able to charge a lot. So it's not directly proportional, but to some degree, it's going to be. So you need to, to practice a lot. You need to, to you know, have some, some level. You need to be able to have some presence. So whatever way you can use to gain that presence, you know, it depends on your situation. Uh, but, you know, at least use social media because I think even like other jobs, you know, or like uh, designers, like graphic designers, like all the ones that have success, they usually go from like their friends and then bigger client, bigger clients. And you sort of upgrade like that. You upgrade your clients, you know, so that's how it works. So, yeah, the hardest part is getting started, getting that first client. So I would say don't, don't be too greedy. Don't be too at the beginning. Don't be like, oh, OK, I need a really big client. Start with your friend. And it's just going to, it's going to go from there. You know, it's just like when you start a YouTube channel, you can stay for like two years or three years at like hundred subs. And then it's going to, you're going to go like that, you know, it's exponential. So just keep at it for a while. And I think that if you have some value to provide at some points, you know, there is no reason it shouldn't work. Do you have any communication tips with your clients? So, uh, you know, obviously communicating back and forth, usually over email a lot, but keeping clients happy, keeping them coming back. Any tips or tricks that you can offer for like making sure that your clients are thrilled with your work? First of all, if they contacted you 
it means they probably like your mixes. So don't go for like something you absolutely never do. Go for your style, at least to some degree, because that's what they heard. That's what they want. Unless, of course, they say something different, but probably they want your sound. Uh, everybody has a sound, you know, like you don't go to Alan Meyerson to have a, a super thin mix with no bass. You know, people, people know he makes really big <laughs> drums and stuff like that. <laughs> so you have to know that. And then you have to kind of understand uh, what the client wants as well. So usually they include a reference. So their reference mix is not going to be a copy of what you should be doing, but it's going to include some key information. Uh, for example, if there is a really loud melody uh, in the climax, and maybe it's way too loud, but it's very upfront, then you need to make sure that in your mix, you can share this melody. It can't be buried. So you don't want to make your mix so different that it's going to change the composition almost, because that's probably going to make them unhappy. So if you sort of take this into consideration, when you send back your first mix, chances are all they have it's going to be small points of feedback, maybe 10 points, you know, something like that. And uh, then it's really easy from there. There is never any problem, never any conflict. I mean, sometimes they want something completely different. In that case, you know, it depends on the client. Sometimes they know what they want. So they're going to tell you, okay, can you lower this? Can you raise this? We just want more. And then you, you tweak it and it's fine usually. But now if you, if you work with less experienced clients, and that's the most annoying part, they don't really know what they want. They said they don't really like it. They want something different, but they can't express why because they don't have the ear to express it correctly. Then it's just more difficult. It's more guesswork. You can ask them to provide a reference, maybe a different track from someone else that they like. And you kind of need to get this information, like extract this information from them. So it's just way trickier to work with people who are more at the beginning of the journey. But, you know, eventually you, you find it. You just have to be more patient. <laughs> but yeah, and personally also, I don't... I don't put a limit on revisions nowadays. Okay. I did this at the beginning. And I mean, sometimes you have to. Uh, some clients are just super perfectionist. Uh, in that case, you after the 20th revision, I will ask them, okay, is it fine if you just add a little bit here? So some clients, I just tell them, okay, can you just give a bit of extra since I've been tweaking for two hours? And usually they're fine with it. It's more like a case-by-case basis. You have to be flexible. But I would say if you kind of try to be careful with the, the reference mix and try to understand what they want at the beginning, chances are it will only be maybe 2% of cases where you have to deal with a tricky client like that. Like that. And it's true that it gets more simple uh, the better your clients are. There is like this meme online I saw recently, like $5,000 client. Uh, okay, let's go with mix B uh, approved. <laughs> And you have the hundred dollar client. He's like, uh, okay, can we tweak this? Can we lower the base? And can we, you know, so to yeah. some degree, this is true. This is true. But you just have to adapt. That's just how it is. Yeah, I feel like at first, for most people, they don't know what they want. I've been guilty of that. Like, you give them a reference of some album you like, but like the tones that you're recording sound nothing like that record. It's like done a completely different way. And then when you yeah. hear it, and you're like, you're like, I can't really compare this guitar tone to that. It sounds totally different. Those drums sound completely different. You know, and then like, it's just as time goes on and experience of either being in the studio or, or dealing with mixing engineers, you start to like really think about your questions first before you say, oh, hey, can you do that? Because they could be working on something and you're like, oh, hey, um, there's this part of the, I'm not even listening to that. You know, what you're listening, what you're focusing on that one little part, you know, could be like something not even important to the mix, but you get people that are probably, you know, going back and forth. They're just listening to the snare and they're like, oh, th this one part, I can't really hear it. And it's like, you can't really get that obsessive about like these like, tiny little things sometimes, because it's really not going to make that much of a difference in the end to whoever's going to be listening to it. Yeah. Also, something I want to mention is like, uh, you kind of need to let go of your ego. Uh, usually when you start out as a mixing engineer, you're going to want to stick to your own version. And sometimes, I mean, I knew I was guilty of this. I was like, okay, this is my mix now. Uh, please don't change too much. But you know, at some point, 
if you have a client who knows what they want and they're actually very clear about their points, just have to understand that there are several ways something could be mixed as well. So you have to just make the client happy in the end. Like unless it's just so bad, like they're just their choices are just so weird, it's just going to ruin it completely. Well, then I would say like if it's just that bad, try to convince them. And I mean, worst case scenario, don't put this on your website. Don't put mm. your name on it. But uh, at some point, you know, it, it's them paying you. So you just have to make it work for them. And if they're happy, you know, it's fine. But, you know, if the client reach out to you in the first place, chances are they kind of know what they want. Mm-hmm. And you end up making them happy. And, you know, in most situations, everything is fine. But just don't have too much of an ego, I would say. Uh, it's, it's, it's the client's track. It's your mix. But it's first of all, it's the client's track. Do you have any any things out, you know, for people out there who are maybe just starting to get into music production and they're looking to, you know, maybe reach out to someone like you for mixing and mastering? Is there any sort of tips or advice that you would want to tell people preparing projects and ways to make, you know, mixing and mastering engineers' lives a little bit easier? Yeah. Actually, I have my documents for this. <laughs> I just send this to people every time because it's, yeah. it's easier this way. So I can just read it to you. <laughs> Keep the balance of your faders. Ideally, quickly rebalance so that the balance is good, even with plugins off. But first, export a rough reference mix, if possible, with all effects on. So I want a reference with effects on, and uh, I want the same balance, if possible, but with no plugins. So that way, it's just kind of easier to have a a better starting point. Uh, Then, uh, every track or patch separated. So violin one, two, violas. If it's like a one contact patch, basically, try to separate it. Then, uh, depending of your door centered, I don't want any repanning. I want the natural uh, pre-panning of a library. Sure, that's fine. But I don't want any repanning. The reason is sometimes there is different ways to pan. Sometimes it can narrow the sounds and sometimes you can be stuck if something is too hard panned. So I don't want this uh, restriction. Then there is uh, internal library reverbs disabled. Uh, many libraries have reverbs and they're not that good usually. It's just they are to sound pretty out of the box. So if there is a reverb button, turn it off. All mixing plugins should usually be off uh, on acoustic instruments or recordings. Then the orchestral library mic positions at the default, unless you're sure about having a specific sound. Uh, having natural room in the samples that's not artificial reverb is good. I like natural room. Uh, you don't beat natural space. And then, yeah, I will let you know if certain mic positions cause issues and we can dive deeper. Then for the plugins of rules, exceptions may apply when an effect is transformative. So it's like a, an amp simulator or like a synth, you know. Then, of course, I don't want you to undo your sound design. So export with effects. If you have an LFO, amp simulator, something that drastically transforms the sound, then keep it, you know, especially for synth and sound design. And if you're in doubt, uh, export an alternate stem, maybe with or without a reverb, something like that. Then I, I say also, feel free to include a README with tempo information and any other useful info. And then I want a 24-bit uh, or 32-bit floating point, because of course you don't want 16-bit files. You want more resolution to mix, because that's going to go through plugins and stuff like that. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of the overall guidelines, you know? So quite a few points, but this is uh, usually the best starting point. It gives me the raw sound of the libraries and uh, the sound design. And yeah, and of course, sometimes the stem is just weird and it's not working. In that case, we kind of dive into it and I ask them, okay, can you tweak this on this stem? It's just some not working in the mix. Mm-hmm. But usually it's just going to be a couple of stems at this point that cause problems or none. So a, a personal question for myself, something that I, I've kind of struggled with, trying, like, you know, when you're mixing a track and you want really big drums that kind of cut through and really have a lot of impact, but without sort of smashing your you know, anything you got going on in the mix bus, like limiters and stuff, you know, cause sometimes like you might have it, everything and sounds fine. But then like when some big impact comes, like everything just kind of, you know, and I know that could be a, a downfall of just probably how like limiters and stuff are setting, but like, what are some ways that you go about like really 
getting impact with big percussion without just crushing the mix? So usually it's just going to be uh, what sample you use and what compression you use, uh, especially for big drums. I mostly just use EQ and compression. And if you have the right samples and you layer the right samples, then it's all about what EQ you have and what compression you have. So generally you usually carve a bit of mid in the percussion because around 500 or 600, it can be a little bit washy sounding, so noisy sounding. So usually that kind of takes away too much room for the horns and stuff like that. So you carve a bit there, but then it really depends on how the drums feel in the context of the mix. So you're going to listen to your drums. Uh, you're going to try to balance them with your brass or your strings and then pay attention to how the accents spoke. So compressing more will basically kind of turn down all your accents and raise all the driving stuff that's going to be in between. So if you want your drums to really be more present and feel like a more powerful continuous rhythm, then you need to compress a bit to kind of raise all that quieter content. And that's going to, to give you all that power that you, that you are lacking. But now, if you compress with too short of an attack, you're going to reduce um, all the definition of the drums as well. So you need to use an attack that's maybe like, I don't know, 15 milliseconds at least, more like 30, to kind of let the drums transients come through. And so it keeps some definition. And then you need to use a short enough release so that it kind of raises the tails. You know, it sort of raises the tails of the drums as they kind of fade off. Uh, so that's the idea, uh, using compression to sort of reduce the, the difference between the big accents and the quieter stuff. And if you have the right uh, level balance and the right dynamic range in your compression between the quieter stuff and the more uh, accented stuff, then it's going to fit just right. I mean, there is no magic secret with um, drums, especially big drums. It's all about having every range covered from the bass to the treble. So you need uh, your big accents, try to have them in the very low sub-region. Uh, try to have some more uh, common accents, like more you know, driving accents straight to still have them punch in the 100 hertz, 80 hertz, something like that. Otherwise, they won't feel powerful. And then if you can't hear the driving stuff, try to reinforce it with some higher stuff, maybe sticks or shakers, stuff like that. If after you've done that, you've balanced everything correctly, and if necessary, you've compressed more, then you will be fine. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of practice is, you know, because especially with trying to make something that sounds big, it's very easy to want, want to make everything sound big. So it's also like finding that balance of like, okay, kick drums and bass guitar. It's like, where do you want the, you know, the sub frequencies to come from? Like, do you want it to be like in the kick or in the, you know, in the bass? If not, if you want it in the kick, then you got to carve out, you know, maybe 20 Hertz from the bass just to kind of make everything sort of fit. A question I have is since you've been mixing and mastering for so long now, what are some things that you work on these days? to try and better yourself? You know, is there any aspects of, of the process that you feel that you are trying to improve? Or new genres? I mean, honestly, you know, I don't go ahead and like mix random tracks just for fun uh, because I already have many tracks to mix, many different tracks. Actually, I don't show uh, all the different genres, but I regularly work on, work on country for country artists and also other stuff. So, you know, I'm exposed to a bunch of different music every day. Like I'm mixing a pop song right now. You know, by default, I feel like by mixing my clients' tracks, I just get exposed to more mixing situations and I just kind of get better from there, you know, slowly. And also as I sort of mix for longer, I get more open-minded in terms of different sounds. You know, maybe uh, before I thought that, okay, I can't have a mix that this dark, this sounds muddy. And I'm like, okay, if I approach this properly, if I pan wide enough to get some separation, maybe I can make the mix this dark, you know? So you kind of get more open-minded with your mixing decisions. You kind of get more creative maybe, but you know, I just kind of let my work kind of teach me. And by mixing other people's tracks, it just kind of goes like that. Uh, but I would say I, I definitely felt like I was improving more in the past. At some point you kind of stop improving as fast, you know? Mm -hmm. And hopefully when I'm 70, I'm not going down because I can't hear 16K anymore. <laughs>
<laughs> but you know, at this point, what I want to improve is just my ability to hear details. And I think there is no shortcuts. It's just about mixing tracks. So if a composer or anyone is trying to improve their mixing skills, I would say mix other tracks. Maybe, I mean, if you just want to improve mixing and you're just trying to, to mix more tracks, just ask your friends for their tracks if you want to practice. But you know, for me, I already have several tracks to mix every day. So it's just enough for me. Nice. And then uh, another thing I want to ask is, what do you what do you tend to use as as far as monitoring? Are you mainly headphones, or do you do you reference on on monitors? Or yeah, so I have some basic monitors, like some eight inch, some JBL, uh, but I don't really use them that much. I just use them to get a feel for it. Like I just turn them on and I walk around in the room and I kind of feel the track. But the thing is, I don't have a perfect room, uh, and I know that even a nice room with some treatment is going to be so messed up that you even need to use walks and stuff like that. And even then, it's still messed up. So um, I feel like with these headphones, it's the HD800S. I just have a very, very clean presentation. The only thing they kind of lack is a sub-bass. Um, but what I have is I have SoundID, the Sonarworks thing, but just for shelf bass boost. So I'm just EQing this a tiny bit. I think it's like 2.5 dB in the bass. And that mm. kind of gives me the monitor feel in terms of bass. And... Uh, I just mix with these like 95% of the time mm. and I feel like I can hear everything. You know, I talked about it with uh, some of my friends uh, that also have the, have these, like a Blakers, for example. And he says that these are also very, very revealing. Uh, he has monitors because he has a very nice room. You know, he has really expensive monitors and nice gear. But he says like these kind of reveal everything anyway. It's just sort of a different experience. Like headphones kind of feed the audio through your brain. Everything is more separated. So you have to know how it's going to sound like. Like you can't expect the, the panning to feel the same, you know. But it, it's all kind of relative. If you know how it's supposed to sound like in these headphones, you're going to be fine. Like they're not hiding anything. In fact, I think they reveal more in terms of the, the dynamics, the transients and the panning as well. Because unless you have like the best room in the world, uh, monitors are going to, to be a less revealing experience uh, when it comes to the exact separation of the sounds uh, and things like that. Now, the only thing to be aware of is that with monitors, you actually hear both the channels in both ears because there is some uh, cross-feeding, of course, because you hear both monitors with both ears. So what can happen is that because the, the headphones are isolated like that, you only hear the left channel in the left ear. If there are phase issues in your mix, you can't really hear them in the headphones because the channels haven't had an opportunity, opportunity to combine, like to sort of merge. And only merging the sound like that can reveal these fade issues. So what I would recommend is uh, if you can't really hear fade issues, I mean, you can because it sounds weirdly wide usually when you have fade issues. You get like a weird kind of stereo feel in the headphones. But if you're not sure, just listen to, to your mix in mono. And mono is going to actually do this. It's going to merge the channels. So what's going to happen is that you will hear all the phase issues even better than if you were just listening on stereo monitors. So it's a different way of listening, but I don't think it's an in-fire one. In fact, I, I really don't know if I would be mixing on monitors, even if I had like a perfect room, mm -hmm. because maybe I'm so used to this, you know, it's also a habit thing. Yeah. So definitely the most important thing is just knowing your gear. But I mean, there is one thing to mention, like these headphones are really godlike. Like any other headphone, like even the HD 600, good headphones, they don't sound anything like this. Like most headphones are super messed up. Like all the biodynamics are super messed up. Mm -hmm. So yes, they're good headphones for headphone standards, but... It sounds really weird compared to like decent flat monitors, you know? So I understand why people who have basic headphones, like even good headphones, like $200, they might feel like, okay, my monitors just sound more natural. And I can understand that. The, the mid-range of these is very, very flat. It's really tuned to be like monitors. So when you kind of listen to these and you switch to monitors, the mids sound quite similar. 
uh, even expensive headphones, uh, other brands than Sennheiser, like I'm not paid by Sennheiser, but even other brands like audiophile brands, they can have like massive weird dips in the high mids, like kind of weird curves. So I feel like these are kind of like a unicorn. Uh, so that's why <laughs> I have them. They have the, the most perfect mid range. But yeah, it's not perfect. It lacks a bit of bass. It's a bit smooth in the highs. But overall, you know, for someone who doesn't have the ideal room, I would say get some good headphones and it, it will be a much better investment. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, that, that's cool that you're using the, uh, the, the sound ID stuff. I actually, once I got into this room, and it's, it's definitely not perfectly treated, but that was one of my goals was I wanted to uh, experiment with that because a few people that I know talk pretty high about the software. And like one thing it, it led me to find out is that these speakers that I have tend to be very kind of like low mid focused. Mm -hmm. So it was just like immediately that whole region was just filtered out. Like it just, it showed everything where it was like hyped and then it just like tried to flatten it out as much as possible. But no, I was going to say, I think sound ID is very good for uh, speakers, for monitors, for headphones. I just use it for the bass boost, but uh, I think it doesn't work on all headphones. Like if I use sound ID on these headphones, it tries to correct some weird things. Like it tries to make weird cuts and it creates some very strange resonances. So I don't think sound ID works for all headphones because like the way headphones kind of are designed is that they have a special curve for the ear canal because it's so close. So I don't know what Sound ID is doing. This should be putting this on a binaural head to try to kind of get like a natural correction curve. But in my opinion, it doesn't work with these. But other people said that on Bear Dynamics and other headphones, Sound ID kind of helped in the full range. So maybe that's true. I don't know. But I would be very careful with headphones. But I think for monitors, because it's, you know, monitors, like you use a mic to kind of get the curve, right? Mm -hmm. In that case, it makes way more sense and it's super accurate. So yeah, this definitely it's a must for anybody with monitors, I think. <laughs> I have one last question for you, Joel. Um, what's what's next for you in 2022? Do you have any goals or like what are you excited about coming down the pike? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to release my course, my new course. So I just want this to be like a way more polished version, you know, of the previous one, really improved upon. So I was spending a lot of time with that. Uh, and then, you know, I just want to keep mixing and get uh, even cooler projects, you know. So I think I've been really blessed in 2021 with lots of projects, but I just want more, more projects. <laughs> Cool. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully I, I just keep getting work. You know, sometimes when you're a freelancer, you have some months, some weeks, it just kind of slows down and you start questioning your life choices. <laughs> right. So hopefully it doesn't stop. Other than that, yeah, that's about it, you know? Yeah. Just keep walking. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about the new course. And uh, yeah, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat with us and nerd out on some audio knowledge. And, and I'm, I'm sure you'll have an awesome 2022 and, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing. Where can people go to uh, check out your book and your course? Yeah, so if you want to check my book, it's uh, on Amazon. It's called uh, Mixing Modern Orchestral Music. Then there is my course. If you type Joel Dolier course, you, you will find it on Google. It's on Teachable. So teachable.com slash you, you will see. Perfect. And then, yeah, if you want my services, there is my website, uh, joeldoliermixing.com. Beautiful. All right. Yeah, well, thanks again for coming on to the podcast. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely be in touch and keep an eye out for your course. Uh, have a very nice afternoon. You too. Take it easy. See you, Joel.